Hello and welcome to this podcast focused on the work and activities of our Centre for the Analysis of Social Policy. I'm Andy Dunn. This week the Centre was officially relaunched at an event held in the University's London office in Pall Mall. Before that, I caught up with the Centre's new director and recent arrival at the University of Bath, Professor Rachel Forrester-Jones, to find out more about her own story and her research, as well as her plans for the work of the Centre. Rachel has a really interesting story. She's a qualified barrister, now working in research all about people with learning disabilities and mental health issues. I began by asking Rachel to summarise how she got where she is and her original motivations for doing it. Well, I was always interested in research. Uh, I was the only student in my final year undergraduate to choose to do a dissertation. Um, I did American Studies and Sociology with a year in America. And so I researched Welsh migration in Wisconsin and how subsequent generations affiliated to their Welsh roots. And so in my final year, I applied and was successful to get a ESRC scholarship to pursue a PhD. And it was an ethnographic study of people with long-term mental health issues who were moving out of a large hospital in Wales into the community. And I lived with them for about a year and a half and mapped their social networks as they moved out. So my motivation really was research, uh, but also a personal motivation, um, experience of dealing with mental health issues in my own family. So tell us a bit more about the, the area you focus on. What kind of projects have you been involved in? So the area of my research is adult social care, and it scans the life course of vulnerable groups, in particular people with learning disabilities and people with mental health issues. Although I also research Tourette's syndrome as well. I'm writing a book about that with a colleague, Melina Malley, at the moment. Um, and I look at their lives, their quality of life, from early transitions to death and bereavement. The primary focus is to further advance the social inclusion of vulnerable adults through social networks and social support. So I've done projects looking at transitions, youth to adulthood, looking at meaningful activities, supported employment, love and romantic relationships, and then transitioning into old age. And I've also done research on death and bereavement. So for example, there's a risk of people with learning disabilities being excluded in many aspects of life, including attending the funerals of those they love. So my research has included that type of topic as well. I'm really interested in the fact that you're a qualified barrister. So firstly, how did you fit that in? And are you, are you practising? Oh, with great difficulty. Um, I studied part-time while I was working full-time, so I, I wouldn't recommend it actually as a pursuit or certainly as a, as a hobby or anything like that. Um, but I've always been interested in legal issues. I guess I did A-level law and all, always kept that interest up. But in particular, uh, as my career um, trajectory played out in terms of vulnerable, vulnerable groups, I became more interested in legal issues. Um, so, for example, it's estimated that around 6% of the prison population actually have a learning disability. And whilst in this country we adhere to Article 6, the right to a fair trial, there is a risk that people with learning disabilities will make false confessions. 
Um, there is also a risk that people with, for example, mental health problems will not be diverted um, from the courts. So there's a risk for such vulnerable adults to be convicted unfairly because either they've not been screened for, example, learning disability properly or they don't actually understand their rights. Um, and I've just written a chapter on this in a book concerning uh, challenging behaviour in people with learning disabilities. I'm also interested in the law in relation to how we conduct research, specifically with people who lack capacity to consent. So the Mental Capacity Act of 2005. And I'm interested in research ethics anyway. I've been chair of various university ethics committees and I'm editing a book about research ethics at the moment. But really useful legal skills to have in terms of the research that you do. Really useful legal skills in terms of how you apply um, analysis, uh, specifically how you look at certain legislation and social policies. So I think a good grounding um, and applying not only legal issues as a subject area, uh, according to adult social care, but also um, just how we approach the practice and the applied nature of social policy. So, for example, the Care Act of 2014, I'm very interested in and have really analysed that and looked to see how that actually plays out in practice, whether or not people um, are actually benefiting from that arguably very laudable piece of legislation. I have to say that there are questions over that and some of the recent research that I've been doing has certainly found evidence to suggest that unfortunately the Care Act um, is not being applied as perhaps it could be or should be. And one of the links perhaps to, to that issue of the Care Act was, was your recent research which we worked on together before Christmas all about this looming crisis of adults who are caring for their now adult children with conditions like Down syndrome. To be honest, before we met, I'd never even put two and two together and considered the issue. But but through a number of powerful examples that came out from media interviews, this is a massive issue facing policymakers and healthcare professionals. How, just summarise, how did that project come about? Well, I was approached by New Forest Mencap, a small NGO in Hampshire, who were concerned about their service um, in terms of reaching out to those who really needed support. They felt that... Uh, they were seeing people in the area uh, with older carers, with their older adult children or family members, uh, but actually that they were unknown to um, New Forest Mencap. And so they really wanted to find out who was out there who didn't get support and how they might be able to help. We know that people with learning disabilities are living longer, uh, and that includes... Um, their carers uh, and it means that their carers are continuing to care for them as they get older. Um, it is a looming crisis and it's concerned with the impact that general longevity has on carers who are continuing to look after their adult family members with a learning disability. Many of those carers are in their 80s or 90s now and they've had a lifetime of caring and they can continue to do so. So for example in 1940, a person with Down syndrome had a life expectancy of 12 years old, uh, but it's now 60 years old. So whereas someone with a child with Down syndrome did not expect to be caring for them in their old age, that situation has now 
changed. And whilst that's to be celebrated, there are repercussions. Um, the older carers need support. What I found in this study was um, that they individuals were acting as care managers. They were dealing uh, with their own frailties whilst increasingly having to manage the lives of their loved ones. It didn't really matter if they lived in in their own home with them or in their own flats around the corner. They were still uh, dealing with transport issues, with day activities for their loved ones, with doing domestic chores, with helping them with health um, issues. And this is difficult for people. And I found this staggering. You're talking about parents in their 90s looking after kids in their 60s. Um, how, How widespread an issue... Did you find that to be? Well, I mean, this was a small scale study. I interviewed 21 older carers, uh, five were couples, and the age, average age of this particular sample was 75, but the age range was 64 to 86. But they obviously, uh, quite, a, quite a few of them weren't um, caring in isolation. They had maybe their partner or their spouse additionally caring, and they told me that their ages were ranging from 76 to 93. So that was just one small study, but this is replicated, we think, across the country and it's corroborated by other research. Um, So I think it is a looming crisis that's perhaps been forgotten about or even ignored. Um, Austerity doesn't help. Uh, The nearly a decade of cuts is... Tricky. Um, I think people are being left out. The the it's a hidden population here, um, and you know, unfortunately, carers, informal carers, tend to be very stoical, and they will carry on caring because they love their adult uh, family members. And so, if they are con- they are prepared to continue caring in that way, then of course the state you know, doesn't necessarily have to intervene. And I I think um, there are huge issues there that that came out of that research. And you're you're right that you highlighted really a hidden issue, but what does your research say, you know, could could be a solution? What what could help those people? I think that the recommendations from that research were certainly a more integrated list, if you like to put it simply, of who is out there, who is getting older and the ages of the carers as well. It's very difficult to find out at the moment exactly who in the community is in need, even though the Care Act stipulates that um, everyone who appears to be in need has a legal right to a care assessment and local authorities have a legal duty to provide services Um, to those who are eligible for them. But it's difficult if you don't know who those people are. And I think there needs to be more investment in data uh, concerning these individuals. I know that where this particular study was located, Hampshire County Council are actually trying their best to um, improve that situation. Also, appropriate accommodation and uh, different types of choices for accommodation respite um, respite means different things to different people but you know when a, a couple tell you that um, they haven't been out for a night out in the last 20 years I mean that it doesn't feel like that is retirement for them all of the people in this study had formally retired from their jobs their paid employment 
but they were just taking on more responsibility. And, you know, what about their health and social care? What about their goals? What about the things that they want to do in retirement? So um, different types of respite where people can go out for a night out, an ad hoc uh, night out, perhaps. And I think, you know, one of the things that people have said to me, uh, well, isn't um, daily activities, doesn't that provide the carer with respite? Well, no, it doesn't, because um, that's just what people do on a normal day-to-day basis, but they come home at night. And and actually, quite often in remote rural areas um, where transport is difficult and where day services are maybe understaffed, and things go wrong, then the carer has to deal with that. So that's not a break for them. That's not respite. So real respite. Um, and I think helping older carers plan for the future too. Um, older carers are fearful, uh, and this has been documented widely, I think, in, in the literature, that they are fearful about the future, what's going to happen to their loved ones after they die. Some of them telling me that they were hoping that they would die before um, that their their adult children would die before they did because they you know they they just couldn't face the prospect of what would happen to them, um, who would look after them after the parents had died. Um, those are just some of the findings from that particular study. And, and that study was carried out in the New Forest in Hampshire. You yes. talked about Hampshire County Council, but presumably the the kind of things that you revealed with the research are applicable around the country. Yes, Partly that, but also, is is it a particular problem in rural settings? It can be a particular problem in rural settings. I think there's probably a need for a wider, broader study looking at this aspect, uh, not only from the carer's point of view, but also from professionals, from social workers, from the local authorities' point of view. Um, we've just had a conference today with uh, over 30 services linked to MENCAP um, to share this information and it does seem to resonate these I think these findings resonate with many people across the country and many services Um, I think you're right obviously in cities uh, you may have better public transport but for example somebody at the conference who was from Liverpool was talking about the fact that they do have good public transport in Liverpool but Uh, the people with learning disabilities have never been taught how to use them independently and there's nobody available to support them to actually go on and use those buses. So there you have the same sort of situation. Unfortunately, what's happening is that, um, you know, one in three day centres are closing now. That's Unison said that, stated that in 2019. And Mancap have also stated that, you know, more and more people with learning disabilities are just spending more and more time at home. And I think that was drawn out in this study too, that in the face of cuts to services where day centres are closing and there hasn't been appropriate replacement services for for those. I mean, nobody, I mean, ideologically, uh, we can all understand why you wouldn't ha- want congregate settings anymore and that you would want uh, more bespoke, individualised, person-centred types of daily activities but in actual fact what's happening unfortunately because of uh, cuts um, or or this is is, this is what's being used as um, as as a reason why 
uh, that uh, where day day services are closing, then quite often they're not being replaced sufficiently well or appropriately for those individuals. And so, of course, uh, people are staying at home more. And that means that family members are having to keep people occupied. And, you know, there's only so many cafes you can go to. Uh, in a local community and, and so many pubs you can go to and then you have to go home and then maybe just watching TV. So it's not necessarily the type of quality of life that we would have envisaged years and years ago with the closure of hospitals and moving into the community. I think there's more that can be done. And on that, are you, you've been researching this for a number of years and I take it that the trajectory has, has kind of been, it's, it's got worse in, in this area. Are you hopeful for the future? I think you're absolutely right that um, there was a lot of hope in the early 1990s, uh, moving on from the Community Care Act of 1990, which was really the the final nail in the coffin of the large institutional Victorian hospitals where people were moved out into the community. And certainly with my PhD, you know, there was a lot of hope in terms of independence, in terms of people having choices to lead their lives as they wanted to. I think that unfortunately we've kind of gone two steps forward and and one step back or or maybe even one step forward and two steps back in terms of what's happening now. And I I think that a decade of austerity has not helped. Um, The wide scale study, um, another study that I did interviewing 150 that I led on uh, interviewing 150 people with learning disabilities has really shown that people have lost support and that um, this is not only a looming crisis, but I think it's a chronic one. And I think it's going to take a long time, a lot of investment and a lot of joining up together, not only between health and social care working together, but also working with academics who have the evidence. You know, we're, we're producing the evidence. Please listen to us about our findings and please work with us in terms of what interventions um, are possible and we will help you. Um, so I think, yes, I. on the one hand, um, I'm hopeful about CASP, actually, uh, in this respect, because our aim is to contribute to shaping social and public health policy uh, based on good evidence, good quality evidence and robust good practice, uh, not only in the UK, but internationally. So I'm hoping that uh, in that sense, we can use CASP uh, for the good. It's a good segue to move on to talk about CASP, mm. which will be officially relaunched this week. So you've summarised the broad aim of CASP. How, how many academics are we talking about? What, what, what exactly is CASP and, and what are the focus areas? Well, the Centre for Analysis of Social Policy, or CASP, uh, is a research centre made up of a, around about 20 academics, but um, we're hoping to increase that number. And we seek to explore understand and find solutions to major social issues, um, not only disabilities, but other issues affecting society around the globe through social policy change. And I think um, the strength that we have as a centre is our critical mass of experts from a range of disciplines, including anthropology, criminology, sociology, public health, and social policy, to name uh, a few. And Working together, uh, I think we can approach issues and analyse social policy using different lenses and different approaches. So, for example, uh, in my field, obesity is an issue for people with learning disabilities. One of my colleagues, ha- uh, Professor Harry Rutter, is um, a public health 
professor, uh, but he would look at obesity from a range, uh, perhaps a different viewpoint to the way that I would look at it in Mm. terms of how we can actually help individuals. And I think that the way that you talk to each other in terms of being a critical academic friend, um, we can approach issues and analyse social policy using these different approaches and certainly also employing a range of theoretical and methodological skills. And I think as a team, as a centre, we believe that we can provide a much deeper and a richer understanding of issues common to individuals and societies across the world. So I'm hopeful that um, as a centre we can move forward and influence social policy change and indeed the relaunch. Um, There are many different people coming from different representatives from different areas, um, including NGOs, charitable organisations, think tanks, as well as health and and social services and... um, and different government organisations. And uh, so I think the strength here is this um, interdisciplinarity, which you don't sometimes get in other centres who are much more focused in terms of, you know, just being maybe uh, a centre for economics. Well, in CAS, we have economists as members as well. So we can work with them very closely. And I guess, you know, you're all united in terms of the academics involved in CASP in trying to influence or affect policy change in in some way. So with the experience that you've got from the projects you've been involved in yourself, you know, what what do you think is the the best way of doing that? What's the best way of getting politicians or civil civil servants rather to take notice of research? Yes, I think there's the uh, the risk, isn't there, of producing many papers and, and academic papers in particular that people that really the decision makers don't read. I think that um, CASP papers, policy papers, um, the looming crisis paper that we've just been talking about, that is a CASP paper. Um, and we've been sending that out to um, all services for MENCAP and we're, I'll be talking about that on Wednesday as well. Um, I think activities in terms of uh, we're hoping to put on some workshops, an annual CASPER lecture. But um, more specifically, one of the initiatives, the first initiative that we have is a policy lab where we will be, uh, we've just got funding, just heard today that we've had funding to put on some policy labs looking at specific topics. The first one will be ageing and in that sense, it will be we'll be inviting different representatives from, for example, policymakers, decision makers, starting at a regional level, uh, p- putting them all into the room with academics, statisticians, economists, but also service users. And that's a little bit innovative in terms of these policy labs because previous ones haven't necessarily included those stakeholders. So all relevant stakeholders looking at research Uh, in an accessible way uh, to try and solve some of these problems or these gaps in social policy. Why isn't social policy working? Let's look at the research. Let's think about solutions from our different points of view and come up with what we think might help and then translating those to the decision makers. But it's always better to invite the decision makers and have them in the room and and have them as having give them a seat at the table Uh, rather than just producing what you think they should do and telling them. Uh, And and from your experience, are they they open to new insights, to different reflections? Is is there an appetite for more of this among policymakers? 
Well, of course, we have a new government. Um, so uh, the jury's out on that one, I would hope, very much hope so. And um, this is really a call and an invitation. Uh, we, we would love um, policymakers and decision makers, of course, at a regional and a national level to be involved in CASP. And so the invitation is there. And um, we will do all we can to reach out in, in different ways. Um, but yes, I think that um, the onus is is also on them not to just take what they're given and, and put it on a shelf, really. I mean, and I suppose just as it's very important for us as social policists and as academics to produce evidence that is accessible to a range of different people, including service users. There's no point giving somebody with a low IQ um, an academic paper. You know, they're not going to be able to necessarily understand. Uh, so we have to find ways and, and we, we can do that. I mean, you can use um, alternative and augmentative communication styles to translate the findings in a much more appropriate and academic uh, and accessible way to different audiences. And I think perhaps more of that um, is needed. And I think probably undergraduate students can help. I mean, one of the other things that is a strength of our centre, of course, is that we're located in a department where we have undergraduate um, social policy, sociology, um, criminology and social science students. And so we're looking forward to um, getting them involved as well as post um, as well as postgraduate students, um, public policy students doing masters, and also PhD students. So I think that we can gain from all of those different viewpoints and use them in quite an, in a, a new and innovative way. I would say, and it's a really good opportunity, basically, with a relaunch of a centre to try and push this again to to, to work with your external partners, um, policymakers, service users, and to, to sort of build build momentum around what you're doing. Yeah, I'm absolutely delighted um, to be the new director and I hope that um, this relaunch on Wednesday is the start of many <laughs> uh, good and meaningful activities to come. Well, look, good luck with the relaunch. Finally, for anyone listening who wants to find out more about the centre or who wants to get more involved directly themselves, what can they do? Uh, we have a website and it's on the university uh, web page. You can find the CASP just or just actually put CASP into Google and you'll find it under the University of Bath. Brilliant. Rachel, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Andy.